Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we started a series several weeks ago, and our topic is anxiety, and the name that we gave this series is Not Alone. In week one of this series, we put uh, this quote up on the screen, among others, this quote that says this, anxiety is a problem that's experienced by millions of people, and they're all thinking what? They're thinking that they're the only one. Well, if you are someone that you love is experiencing anxiety, you're not alone. You are not alone. And I say that with a special weight this morning uh, because so many of you have been opening yourselves up and sharing your stories. And we are so honored and thank you and thankful that you would do that. Um, every one of those stories that comes in, either through email or every one of those conversations we have with one of you about your stories, every one of those makes this series more real. Because we don't want this just to be something that we get up here and, we, and we're teaching on a topic. We want this to be as helpful as we can. And every time we hear one of your stories, we realize just how real this is. And every story is unique. Every person's story is unique. There's parallels and things, but every story is unique. And one of the things that's been so clear as people have been sharing their stories is that anxiety is not as simple as a continuum where you've got a little bit of stress on one part of it and then you have panic attack on the other. It's not like that at all. There's so many different aspects to this, and, and it's so helpful when people share their stories with us. This anxiety response that we've got, it is hardwired into our lives. And when it's working properly, it's an amazing thing. We live in a world, and we talked about this last week, we, we live in a world where there are real threats to our minds and our bodies and even our souls, and God has designed us in a way where we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're able to respond. We're remarkably well-equipped to respond to these threats. And again, we talked last week a little bit, pressed into this more. And, and there are parts of our brain that work at a subconscious level. And this is the part of the brain that kicks in when you're sitting on the sidelines at a soccer game. And someone kicks a ball and it's coming at your head. And without any thinking, you just naturally respond, right? To protect yourself. We have a body and a mind and a brain that is fearfully and wonderfully made to the point where we don't have to think about that. We just know what to do instinctually in those situations to those threats. But our brains are more amazing than that because there are parts of our brains that can process extremely complicated situations. They can help us assess the true nature of a very complicated threat and what the best response is to it like a decision that affects your job or a decision that affects your health or a decision that affects your relationships. And it gets even better than that because our brains are designed in such a way we can interact with other people's brains. And we're not limited to our own thinking. We're able to access the thoughts of others. And we can ask people to share their thoughts and, and to share their experiences and we can draw from their wisdom. And here's the thing. We don't even have to be in the same room with them when we do. We've been recommending those books throughout the series, and I'm hearing there's so many of you guys. Amazon should give us a cut of this because <laughs> I'm hearing they don't, but they should um, as if they need. Yeah, they don't need the money, right? Um, they, the, uh, so many people have been saying these, these are such great resources because we can access other people's great thinking on these topics, can't we? Through these books and through these other materials. And it gets even better than that because God has designed us in such a way we can even interface with God himself. We can pray and we can, we can listen to the Holy Spirit and then we can interact with his word, with the word of God. 
And that's one of the things I've been working really, really hard. In fact, that's the primary thing I've been working on really, really hard on in this series is interacting with God's word and trying to pray and say, God, what would you have us to say that would be helpful and, and all those things. And here's where I think we should start today. I encourage you to write this down. Your creator invites you to follow your soul level longings home. This is our big thought for today. Your creator invites you to follow your soul level longings home. Today we're going to be working our way towards the word rejoice. And may I present to you that rejoicing is where we land when we follow our soul level longings home. This God-given threat detector that we've got, this, this amazing brain, is even more remarkable than most people realize. And again, may I present to you for your consideration that one of the reasons why, not the only, one of the reasons why so many of us experience so much anxiety is that our amazing brains are alerting us to threats that are happening at a much deeper level than we think they are. And we haven't really gone to those deeper places. We haven't done a deep enough threat assessment of them. And I'll show you what I'm talking about here. There's an excerpt from this, one of the books you recommend. It's called uh, Don't Feed the Monkey Mind. So here's an excerpt from that. And this author in this little excerpt, she describes the physical feelings that we get when we experience anxiety. And she says this. She said, when you get those feelings, this is the fight or flight response. And while you may not enjoy the feeling, it has kept us alive for thousands of years to ever-present possibilities. Number one, death. Number two, losing social status or being kicked out of the tribe. These are universal. What I call the primordial threats. In other words, the author is making the claim that if you drill down deep into the stress response, it usually at its root has one of two things that it's trying to alert you to. Either one, physical safety, or two, that somehow you're in danger of losing some sort of respect or status with this crowd, with your tribe. And I want to encourage you to do something today. I want to encourage you to use all, if you're not already, using all of your God-given faculties to ask deeper level questions than you may have been asking so far. Let's start with physical health. Jennifer Shannon, who I quoted earlier, she says this in her book. She says, we cannot relax and be at peace unless we feel what? Safe. Humans and all other creatures, regardless of species, are first and foremost survival machines. Maintaining safety is, by necessity, our highest priority. When we feel our safety is at stake, everything else, appreciating the beauty and wonder of life, pursuing the heart's desires, or simply being present in the moment, becomes expendable. Is this a true statement? Yeah, it's a true statement. But let me give you an example of a deeper level question. If we're survival machines, how can we feel safe when every day is one day closer to our death? If what she says is true, and it is true, how can we feel safe if every day closer is one day closer to our death? What if? What if we could follow this soul-level longing that we have for safety? And what if we could follow it all the way until we arrived at a place where we no longer see death as a threat? Can you imagine that? 
Isn't that where we have to arrive? Ultimately, otherwise we're, always, we're never going to be able to have the peace that she talks about. And I was reflecting on these things and I recognized that I had the painful privilege of living with a dad who was diagnosed with cancer and he didn't fear death. Both of those things were true in his life. And as a result, to use her words, he was able to appreciate beauty and wonder in life. He was able to pursue his heart's desires. He was able to be present in the moment like no one that I've ever met before or since. There would be days, I was remembering this, you know, there'd be days after his diagnosis where we'd catch him just looking out the window. We lived, grew up in this little farm and he'd be looking out the kitchen window out at out the farm. And he'd be like, Dad, what are you looking at? And he'd say, oh, it's just a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. That's after his diagnosis. What if? What if we followed our soul-level longings for life and for safety to a source that death itself couldn't threaten? Wouldn't that be an amazing place to be? Now, may I present to you for your consideration that our longing to be loved is even deeper than our longing for life. Why do I say that? I say that for two reasons. There are people when they feel that they no longer have hope in a relationship, when they are struggling with deep, deep loneliness, that they would rather end their life than live with that. Right? Why else do I say that? On the other end of the continuum, there are people who would gladly lay down their lives for those they love. So she's right. These are two big deals. Physical life is a big deal. We long for safety. We long, we're survival machines. And we have this deep longing for relationship. And what if on the relationship side of things, what if we let those deep soul level longings, what if we really spoke to those and went beyond the surface? Let me give you a really specific example of what I'm talking about here. Let's say you're a teenager and you, you go into this house, you're over at a friend's house and there's a bunch of your friends are there. And while you're there, someone pulls out a movie or a video or a game or something like that. And that movie or level or game or something like that, it's got content that is, it mocks God. Or it's got content, content that just objectifies women. Or it's got content that really crosses the line when it comes to violence. And so in your head, you're like, I shouldn't be watching this thing, but I know if I say something, they're all going to be like, what's your problem? Blah, blah, blah. You know, goody, goody. They're going to have to say stuff. Here's what I want you to do. I want to encourage you to take that longing for community even deeper. Because if you take it deeper than just, I might offend these people, you're going to recognize you've got a longing for more than being with those people. You have a longing for being with people who are going to accept your values and embrace your beliefs, right? And I want to encourage you to not stop there either. Because at a soul level, you've got a deeper longing than that. You've got a longing to find a community that loves you enough not just to tolerate your beliefs and your values, but to speak the truth in love to you. Isn't that what we all want, right? To be a part of a, of a community of people that care about our best interests, that love us enough to speak the truth in love. 
today, we're going to get some soul level coaching. Soul level coaching from a man named Paul. And oh, I came across a great description of Paul's life in one of the books on your list. All right, so far in this series, we've been quoting a lot of books. And the the ones that we've primarily been pulling from are books that refer to quantum physics and neural pathways and cognitive behavioral therapy and all these things. This week, we're going to pull a lot of quotes from a book called Anxious for Nothing by a pastor named Max Lucado. Many of you guys have, uh, have read this thing. You recommended it. Uh, so anyway, let me, let me read this excerpt. So if you're not familiar with Paul's life, the guy that we're about to read from, this is his life, all right? So here's, here's what he writes. Um, Max Lucado says, If only the storms in our lives were limited to wind and rain. The tempests consist of the big Ds of life, difficulties, divorce, de- disease, death. Does anyone know where to find a shelter? That is suitable for these gales. The apostle Paul did. If anyone had reason to be anxious, it was he. Let your imagination transport you 2,000 years back in time. Envision an old man as he gazes out the window of a Roman prison. Paul's about 60 years old, 30 years a Christian. And there is scarcely a seaport on the Mediterranean that he doesn't know. How, look how stooped he is. He's all angles and curves. Blame his bent back on the miles traveled and the beatings endured. He received 39 lashes on five different occasions. He was beaten with rods on three. Scars, spider web across his skin like bulging veins. He was once left for dead. He had been in prison, deserted by friends and coworkers. He's endured shipwreck, storms, starvation. He's probably half blind, squinting just to read. What's more... He's waiting trial before the Roman emperor. Nero learned to curry favor of Roman citizens by killing believers, of which Paul is the best known. As if the oppression from the empire weren't enough, Paul also bears the weight of newborn churches. The members are bickering. False preachers are preaching out of pride and envy. So much for the easy life of the apostle. His future is as gloomy as his jail cell. Yet... To read his words, you'd think that he'd just arrived at a Jamaican beach hotel. His letter to the Philippians bears not one word of fear or complaint, not one. He never shakes a fist at God. Instead, he lifts his thanks to God and calls on his readers to do the same. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Paul's prescription for anxiety begins... With a call to what? To rejoice. I want to encourage you to write that in your notes. There's a place you can, you can jot that down. Paul begins his counterintuitive, or begins with, Paul begins with a counterintuitive call to rejoice. And I say counterintuitive because rejoicing is usually the thing you do after the thing that you hope for happened, Right? Isn't rejoicing what happens after you get out of prison? Isn't rejoicing what you do after your team scores the winning goal? Isn't rejoicing what you do after you get the raise? After the threat is passed, rejoicing comes after, doesn't it? To which in the first service, our friend Rick, many of you know our friend Rick, Rick says, yes. And I'm like, you're right. Rejoicing comes after, but let me tell you this. True rejoicing, the kind of rejoicing that Paul's talking about, that kind of rejoicing comes after. After the afters that most people are hoping for. 
many of life's foundational afters are already true. Let me repeat that. Many of life's most foundational afters are already true. When our God-given warning systems are triggered and won't turn off easily, sometimes, not always, sometimes it's because they're alerting us to the fact that we're placing our hope in the wrong things. And this morning, I got this picture. I was, I've been working on this thing all week, but this morning I got this, this picture. And the picture was, um, many of you have driven down 36 towards Wisconsin, right? And you know what happens when you get to the St. Croix River, those, those big bluffs. So picture that. This is the picture I had in this morning. And picture, imagine the Wisconsin side of the river. That is the life that your soul longs for most, to which our Wisconsin people said, amen, I know, I know. But just imagine with me, as hard as it is to imagine that Wisconsin is a promised land. (laughs) Um, Imagine that that is the life you long for most on the other side of that river. Now, imagine you see this beautiful bridge that a lot of people are going across and it looks easy and it looks fast and it looks like everyone is making it there and it looks solid and it looks firm and it looks like this is a no-brainer this is how i get from where i am to where i want to be this is where i place my hope imagine that but also imagine this imagine there's a design flaw in that bridge And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. On your journey to that other side, to that life that your soul longs for most, it is not an if, it's a when. That thing is going to drop out from underneath you. Imagine if there's a warning system going off inside that is alerting you to that, even if it doesn't make sense in your head. Sometimes when our warning system is going off, may I present to you, it's like that. And let's just pretend every analogy breaks down. Let's just pretend that that Stillwater lift bridge represents something that is as solid now as the day it was built. You know, let's imagine there's another route that you can take that seems a lot more out of the way, that now seems like far fewer people are going across it. But let's say that that bridge is one that is guaranteed to get you to the place that your soul longs for most. Isn't that where you want to go? Sometimes that unsettled feeling that we've got is because we're placing our hope in something that has a design flaw. And we're placing our hope in things that ultimately can't produce safety, that ultimately can't produce the types of relationships that we long for most. Paul coaches us to rejoice in the Lord. That's what he says. He doesn't say rejoice in the stinky situation. I'm editing myself here. I can see the kids in the front row. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't say rejoice in the really bad situation that you're, you're in right now. He says rejoice what? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rather than seeking security in people and in things that will later prove to be the equivalent of a bridge that's about to collapse. Now, before we open up to Philippians this morning, because that's the letter we're going to be looking at, Paul's letter to Philippians. Before we open to Philippians, I want to show you a verse that I found a couple years ago in the book of Psalms that speaks to this. The verse is Psalm 17, 14. I want to encourage you to write it down. This is such a great one. The verse says this. It says, Save me from those whose reward 
is only in this life. Save me. Save me from those whose reward is only in this life. Isn't it easy to get swept up with those whose reward is only in this life? And we start chasing after the things that they're chasing after. And those are things that only have reward in this life, not the one that goes on forever. Save me from those people. I want to encourage you, pray that every day. Pray it over yourself, pray it over your family and friends and neighbors, pray it over your church. If we're placing our hopes in the wrong things, then we should listen to those God-given warnings and follow them all the way home, all the way home. All right, well, let's spend some time now listening to Paul. And I say listening to Paul because we're going to mostly just read some of what he wrote here. And you're going to see that this is in the fabric of who he is. This isn't an aspirational goal at this point in his life. This isn't something that he, um, that he just a concept he came up with his head and said, let me float this by you. This is something ingrained in his life, in his existence. So let's read from Philippians uh, chapter one. We're going to start with verse 12. And I want to let you know that if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free. Each and every week we keep a stack there at, the, um, at that table. We encourage you to, to take one, not just for use in the service, but take one home with you. All right, here we go. Philippians chapter one. Verses 12 to 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, sisters, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Where's Paul writing from? From prison, right? He's writing from prison. And yet, Paul's able to rejoice. Why? Well, we see here, one of the reasons is he can recognize that God can work all things for good. He can see that even though he's in prison, when he's been called to reach people, he's reaching people. God can work all things for good. Lucato says this. He says, the most stressed out people are what? Who are the most stressed people? Stressed out people. They're control freaks, right? They fail at the quest that they most or they fail at the quest they most pursue. The more they try to control the world, the more they realize they cannot. The Bible's got a better idea. Rather than seeking total control, relinquish it. You can't run the world, but you can entrust it to God. In the book of Proverbs, we read, there is no wisdom, there is no insight, there is no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Well, as Paul continues... He provides even more examples of how God is at work all the time, working all things for good. Even when people were trying to use Paul's imprisonment for their benefit. Look at this. Paul writes, pick it up with verse 15, go 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. In my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. These yahoos that are trying to preach now in such a way that's going to afflict me, kick me while I'm down in prison, God's going to even use that for good. This is one of the reasons why Paul constantly points us to pray. He constantly points us to pray. Max Cato writes this about prayer. He says, Others see the problems of the world and they wring their hands. 
we see the problems of the world and we bend our knees. One of the secrets to building our lives on a firm foundation is to seek alignment with God's plans and his purposes through prayer. Prayer is one of the primary ways we do this. And it's interesting, what Paul says then next flows right into prayer. That's the very next thing after talking about this. Look at this. Philippians 1, picking up with 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your what? Through your prayers. And with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Imagine you could follow your soul longings all the way there. Where to live is Christ, to die is gain. You're not going to get there unless you put your full trust on these promises. You have to actually do it. You have to put your full weight in it. It can't be something you just ascribe to in your head. It needs to to be reflected in our life. It's a step of faith, not just intellectual step. It is a step of faith. It is putting your full life trust in these promises. And I was thinking again about my dad. I was thinking about you had to have a lot of faith to live with this guy, I, I tell you. Not so, well, maybe faith in God that there is a life after death because you're probably going to meet that day pretty quick hanging around him. Um, growing up, I'm the only country kid that I know that had an airplane hanger next to our chicken coop. Only one I, I think I've ever met that had an airplane hanger next to our chicken coop. One day, one day, my dad brought home a Piper Cub airplane. Piper Cub, it's one of these. It looks a lot like this. They kind of all look the same. This little yellow airplane with two seats. He brought one of these home. And then he went to town and got some corrugated metal from a shed they were tearing down in Hastings. And then he found some telephone poles somewhere and he constructed an airplane hanger next to our chicken coop, which there is no way that was legal. There is absolutely (laughs) no way that was legal. But then he used to say, illegal is a sick bird, he said. That was one of his things. So I remember asking my dad, I was just a little kid at the time, but I remember standing out by our field and I'm, I'm looking out at our hay field. That was going to be the runway, our hay field. And I'm looking at the end of the runway slash hay field. And here's this tree line. And these aren't just little trees. These are, these are these big, probably 40-foot tall pines with not much space in between. They were tall enough to be higher than the power lines, which were kind of running through them. And I remember thinking, um, first flight here, how do you know you're going to clear those tree lines? Now, you know, you're going to make it. He said, well, I'll make it. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot of people who could read a book about Piper Cubs or listen to a podcast about how long it takes for them to take off and believe in their head that it was possible to clear those trees. But there are far fewer who would get into that plane and put their full trust and what that amazing man and that little piper cub were capable of. But those of us who climbed into that cockpit in faith, we experienced a view that so few people got a chance to experience. As we bring this message to close, as we begin to do that, I want to encourage you, place your full trust in the promises of God. 
your full trust. Promises that speak to the deepest longings of your souls. Promises that are so different than the promises offered by those whose rewards are only in this life. Let me give you quickly a few of these promises. Here are some reasons for us to rejoice. Number one, we are loved by the one who knows us best. And the reason I had you fill in the word are loved is because this is one of those afters that I was telling you about. This is already true. You are loved. And you're not loved by somebody who once they get to know you better, aren't going to love you anymore. God already knows that thing you thought last night. God already knows that lie you told. God already knows that thing you did last week. God knows everything about you and me. And he still loves us. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if we had that foundational truth at a soul level? Not just like, oh, I read that in the Bible. God loves me. I sang that in a little song. What if we got that? That God loves us, that nothing can take that away, neither life nor death, angels, principalities. Nothing can separate us from love of God. What if we really grasp that? Number two, here's another reason to rejoice. Rejoice, new life be, can begin at death. And I'm not just talking about eternal life. Rejoice, because every sacrifice that God will ever ask you to make is a trade up. Those things that were just like, God, I can't give this to you. I can't give this to you. I can't give this to you. As we're able to give those things to God, we realize it is a trade-off. Not only that, not only will every sacrifice that God asks you to give will be a trade-off. Rejoice because every trial that the devil sends your way can refine your faith. It can make you stronger. How many of you have had a horrible thing happen to you that made you stronger? Right? can make you stronger. Here's another reason to rejoice. Rejoice because the price has already been paid for our sins. One of the biggest connections you're going to see is the connection between guilt and anxiety. Unresolved guilt. Lucado devotes an entire chapter to this, chapter 3. And in it, he writes that humanity's first exposure to anxiety came as a result of guilt. And he said that even today, there are those who try to numb their guilt through drinking or entertainment. There's those who try to deny their guilt to others and by making excuses or themselves. They try to deny their guilt. There are those who attempt to minimize their guilt by making excuses. There are those who attempt to bury their guilt under a mound of work or a calendar that's just filled with stuff. There are those who try to punish themselves for their guilt. There are those who try to avoid their guilt altogether. Never bring it up. Try to forget. There's those who try to redirect their guilt by lashing out at other people, family, friends, coworkers. There are those who try to offset their guilt by vowing to atone for their sins by doing good deeds. And perhaps most tragic of all, there's those who embody their guilt. And they do something wrong, and then they say, I am that. I drink too much, I am a drunk. I've made mistakes in relationships, I am that trash. Look how Paul opens his letter. This is just two verses in. Philippians 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace go together, don't they? 
Can I get an amen to that? Grace and peace go together. Lucator writes this. He says, a happy saint is one who at the same time is aware of the severity of sin and the immensity of grace. Can you imagine if we could grasp grace at a soul level that we have been forgiven our sins, not in part, but the whole, as we sang earlier. Can you imagine what that could do for ourselves to not carry our guilt and our shame anymore? Think of the practical application of that too. If you realize that you've been forgiven that way, what does that do to us? We can now forgive one another. How beautiful would that be if we were walking in that kind of grace? Here's another reason to rejoice. Number four, God is able to work all things for good. We spent a lot of time on that one, so let's move on to number five. Number five, we are invited into an imperfect, messy, broken, and yet beautiful community. Rejoice, because the family that God invites us into is broken, and it's messy, and it's not just you. We all have our stuff. And there isn't this, this, this threshold at the door that says, get all your stuff right before you can come in. Our sign says, welcome, right? Welcome in, because it's not just you. Welcome in. We're invited into that kind of a community. I received an email this week, and I asked if I could share some of the content with you, and they said, absolutely. The email was from a mom of one of our teens who graduated some time ago. And this email came from this family where you look at the family and you go, this is picture-perfect family. This is the perfect family. They got the beautiful, beautiful house. They've got these close-knit relationships with one another. They've got these crazy, talented kids. And this mom opened up with what she called the, quote, brain journey that one of her daughters is on. It's a journey that began with panic attacks that she described as terrifying and paralyzing. And as her email unfolded, she shared about these lessons that she'd learned along the way. Their family was learning along the way. How, and these are her words, negative message superhighways can become gravel roads. And how new positive thought highways can be built. And she expressed how God blessed their hard work a few carefully prescribed medications, a ton of prayer, and a positive, I can do this attitude. So inspiring and also so helpful because you look often at these other families and you go, they got it all figured out. I don't. Our PRC can testify to this just on Tuesday. I think it was, I was meeting with them and I was just looking across and I said, will you just remind me that it's tough to be a parent of a teenager. You just you know, remind me, because it is, right? And it's tough to be a teenager, isn't it? It's hard. We're all in this together. There are people sitting around you who are at the terrified and paralyzed point. There are also people sitting around you who've discovered some things that are really helping. How beautiful it would be if we all pull off our masks, we get real with one another, and we share stories in this beautiful, wonderful, messy, broken thing we call the church. All right, let me give you one more. One more promise of God. One more reason to rejoice. The day is coming when all will be as it should 
be. And there's multiple references to this day in Philippians. Paul refers to the day of Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 10 and 2.16. Paul says we eagerly await the return of our Savior from heaven. In Philippians 3.21. And Paul references co-workers whose names are included in the book of life. In Philippians 4.3. And I tell you, I find myself with each and every passing year. Talking to more and more of you. Saying, Lord, haste the day. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? Come, Lord Jesus. My hope is not in this world as it currently exists. As we eagerly await that day, let's put our full weight on those promises of God. This is a big deal. Such a big deal. I googled this thing. I I put in promises of God in Google. Within 0.45 seconds, I had 480 million links that I could choose from on the topic, promises of God. What if we could lock on, anchor to, build our lives upon the promises of God? We have real reason to rejoice and to rejoice in things that death itself cannot shake. St. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness known to everyone. And here's what comes next. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I hope you can come back next week because this is not the end. The message today is not get out there and put your full trust in the Lord. We need help with that. We need help with that. So next week, we're going to take on this. Ask, ask. Let's press into that. Well, um, what you see up on the screens right now, we've been, we're, we've been trying to say, let's memorize Philippians 4, 4 through 9 throughout the series. And here's the section that I want to encourage you to, to work on memorizing this week. We put it on the back of your notes so you could bring that home with you. And I want to encourage you. One of the reasons I'm encouraging you to try to memorize these is so that these words sink deep into our lives, deeper into our lives, to the point where we're able to place our full trust in them. The word says this about those that do in Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. For he or she shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green. It will not be anxious in the year drought. Well, as the worship band comes up, let me pray for each and every one of you. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer. 